ADP has your back with ADP Marketplace, a digital HR storefront. Be a more trusted advisor to your clients by recommending apps to help streamline HR processes and free up time to focus on people. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, ADP Marketplace, later in the episode. Well, apparently they didn't even talk. He didn't even talk with the client about what it would cost at the beginning. He presented his bill after the fact, and the client accepted it. Which tells me they got a lot of value out of it, and they didn't didn't put up a fuss. (laughs) He undercharged it. He left value on the table. Well, then that's my feeling, too. And just because you can't think of a way to do a value-based bill for this doesn't mean that there isn't a way. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Clockshark. Clockshark is the leading GPS, time tracking, and scheduling system built for local construction and field service companies that want a simpler way to track time, run payroll, and understand job costs. With the capabilities of crew tracking, scheduling, job site geofencing, teams and project segmentation, automatic labor allocation, budgeting, and reporting, Clockshark has built a robust mobile time tracking system to handle the unique challenges that face your clients. With Clockshark, your clients can keep accurate records like overtime, paid time off, unpaid time, hours per job, and task, as well as the crucial data needed for certified payroll. With the integrations Clockshark has, you'll be able to connect to one of many ADP payroll platforms through ADP Marketplace and process payroll in minutes with a click of a button. Clockshark's pricing starts at just $6 a month per employee. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clockshark. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-A-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay Financial. Wouldn't it be great if you could open a new business bank account 100% online without having to go to a physical bank branch? Relay is a 100% online bank that is 100% focused on small business. With Relay, you can effortlessly collaborate with team members, manage payments, and issue corporate cards all from a bank. Accountants and bookkeepers love Relay because they get a partner portal, can manage staff access without compromising security, and enjoy enriched direct bank feeds to QuickBooks Online and Zero. To sign up in less than 10 minutes and enjoy stress-free banking with no monthly fees or monthly minimum balances, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. So David, after last week, I felt like we had so many stories. I, I said I would bring five stories today. And I think I have, you know, 25. I just can't do it. I can't cut it down enough. So I'm going through my list and I'm trying to highlight the ones that I do think are the top five. Uh, I've got the Intuit acquisition of Trade Gecko. That's That's a big one. one. Uh, Rippling raised a ton of money. I've got an article in CPA Trendlines, an opinion piece, when time-based pricing works. But I don't know. What what do you got? A lot of smaller app news. Um, Different people did raises. Um, Kind of related on an, on the other side of Intuit's uh, acquisition of Trade Greco, Webgility announced a partnership with QuickBooks Desktop, hmm. which I find was like, okay, here's a competing product, but in the desktop space, like, like what direction is is the train headed here? Yeah, that was a little confusing. Well, I think we should then dig into App News. We are the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Let's start with that. But first, we have a review, right? We have two reviews. So this is uh, from Joe via Apple Podcasts, five stars. Great content and timely on current events. Great podcast with timely and relevant content for forward-thinking accountants. 
Much easier and better analysis, in my opinion, than reading weekly newsletters. Now I can stay up to date on my morning walks. And that's from Joe Harris. Joe, thanks for listening. So let's get to app news. Yeah, so let's talk about TradeGecko and Intuit. Intuit has agreed to acquire TradeGecko for $80 million. So David, you're the app expert. Seems like you know all of these 800 or so apps that are in the ecosystem now, especially in the QuickBooks world. So give us the rundown on TradeGecko for those of us who are not familiar. So TradeGecko is an inventory app, but they really kind of specialized in more of that e-commerce level of e of um, inventory. So, you know, where you have no, nobody just opens an e-commerce website, right. Or just only has an Amazon shop, right. They have an Amazon shop, an Etsy shop, something on big commerce, you know, they have another thing over here. Well, if you're selling t-shirts and you sell one medium t-shirt, you got to have that updated in all your shopping carts across the whole interwebs. It could be like a handful or even dozens, right? I think the term for this is um, multi-channel. Right. Multi-channel or omni-channel. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. And then sometimes you even have your own um, brick and mortar, right? And you have to deal with that. And so it's just, it's uh, it's something I think Intuit's wanted to get into for a while. Um, I think they even made some attempts to build it themselves, but it's like, it's very hard to solve. It's, it's crazy hard to solve. Right. Because the inventory in QuickBooks Online has been always the number one reason why people stick with desktop, right? It's just not that great. Yeah, and if you th- now there's a lot of reactions to this, like on, on, and it was actually my reaction as well. What because I saw somebody tweet like, "Oh, great, this is going to help QuickBooks Online finally get all the inventory features it needs." And I was like, people were saying that when they bought there's an uh, inventory app called Lettuce. That oh yeah, whatever QuickBooks happened with that? Bought, uh, how many years ago? This is the first QuickBooks Connect they were already acquired by then, so it's going seven years, seven and a half years ago, right? Seven years ago yeah. they acquired Lettuce apps and. Not really sure. I mean, I think some of the the concepts or ideas maybe got integrated in, but I, I don't think it was ever like wrapped, right? Or, or <laughs> it was never integrated. lettuce or hepped. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> thank um, you, thank you. I'm here all weekend. Uh, but on the other side, there was an article which is so you just made the comment about you know people couldn't leave QuickBooks Desktop, right? Right, because the inventory is just so much deeper in QuickBooks Desktop. Well. Webgilia announced that they have a partnership with the two its desktop QuickBooks point of sale now. So this is like a press release about their integration with QuickBooks desktop? The, yeah, it's basically it's a, it's a desktop integration, but Webgility does well, basically what TradeGecko does. Oh. So it's like, well, if Intuit's doing deals here on the desktop side, I feel like it's, it's A, confusing to the market. But if you're Intuit, isn't your number one goal right now is to get everybody onto one platform, QuickBooks Online, and moving forward? Yeah, And so it's strange that, that over here, they're still doing these kind of like deals with desktop. Because if you're using desktop and now you add on Webgility, why would you use QuickBooks Online with the new TradeGecko product? You can't get away from it, right? There's just too many users. Well, well, I think you just don't keep giving them carrots, right? If you put all the carrots on <laughs> QuickBooks Online, people eventually go there. But if But if you're on desktop and they're being a stubborn horse and you give them another carrot as a reason to not yeah. move, they're not going to move. And so people keep tossing them carrots when really just put the carrots on QuickBooks Online and they'll come. Well, that's what's happening, right? So if they can successfully integrate Trade, trade Gecko and the two founders are moving over to Intuit to work there, if they can make it happen, they can build it into the product, then yes, finally people will move. But if you don't get inventory, good inventory into online that's as good as enterprise people aren't going to move yeah and it'll be interesting how they if it how it gets integrated in 
right? Because I know these enterprise level inventory cloud packages, you know, and I don't know what Trade Gecko's pricing was, but you know they run five hundred to a thousand dollars a month SaaS. These 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 heavy duty inventory packages, and it's, it's it'll be interesting. To, will this get integrated into the UI, or is it going to be more of in the same? You know, like um, when Intuit uh, acquired the backup program, uh, Chronobooks. Yes. Right. And it's kind of like just an add on. It's almost like they're taking a bunch of add ons and they're bundling it as a full blown price. And, or, or, you know, is it going to be a kind of a standalone app that gets right. framed in, or is it going to actually be part of the actual QuickBooks code online code base? That is not clear. And is it going to be part of advanced or will it be part of pro and the other editions? Because I saw another announcement about QuickBooks online. QBOA advanced is going to include bill.com, like the full functionality of it integrated into QBOA, which is interesting to me because David, your company, Melio, is now the bill pay for, it seems like, all the other editions? Is that what's happening here? Is they're splitting it up? That I'm not very clear about because I think we're in QBOA Advanced as well, Melio is, so I'm oh. not totally clear on that. I saw that press release. I'm not totally understanding what that is. It's almost like, and even Zero, right? When they bought mm-hmm. HubDoc, they're starting to integrate apps in, which makes you wonder like, okay, are we starting to see a closed ecosystem now? Versus, you know, the last six to eight years, you I mean, even when I was in two, we we're building an open ecosystem, right. right? To where apps are starting to be purchased or functionalities being built into the accounting software. Um, or is it where things are going to be built in, but there's still going to be multiple players? It's just not, it's not really, it's, it really mm. feels like things are in transition from the previous model of the last six to eight years where it was QuickBooks Online and just add-ons. Yeah, we'll see. It's getting gray. Well, people need help, right? That's I think that's what this is designed to do is just give people a solution. I, I mean, hopefully they won't eliminate the other options. The, uh, small business owners who are making these decisions uh, on what to integrate, like they don't have enough advice. Accountants aren't giving it to them, right? There's not enough accounting firms and consultants doing this kind of work. So it's up to Intuit to say, these are the default apps you need to integrate and we're going to do it for you. It's all going to be set up and hey, you can go use other ones if you want, but here's the ones that we partner with and we recommend. Yeah, just out of the box is what you get. And I guess we'll find out because f- it definitely feels like the pendulum swinging towards build it all in-house again and, and acquire a bunch of things. And then and I, I've seen this pendulum, right? And then companies do that. Then they realize, oh, we're not really good at all these other things. So let, let's spin them off again and let somebody else who's really good at it build it separately. So it'll just be interesting to see like how this iterates through over the next 12 to 24 months. Now, the price on that I was being reported um, was $80 million that acquisition price. Mm-hmm. And so remember last week when we talked about um, on deck and they got acquired for like 90 million. Yeah. One of those online loan companies, online loan companies. So cabbage, which is a competitor to on deck, they are, look, they might be seeking a sale and they think they want up to a billion dollars. So when we talked about cabbage had a little rough time with the downturn. They laid off like 600 employees, but what Cabbage did, so Cabbage exploded. They, they really did a good job partnering with the community banks. And they helped 270,000 applicants get $6.5 billion in PPP loans. So they got a piece of that action. Right. But the bump, they're saying, could just be a one-time thing. Because it may not be sustainable. Because Cabbage apparently hasn't resumed um, handling non-PPP loans. Interesting. So their core, their core function. I know they spun up that little small business bank thing they're trying to get off the ground, right? But their core function of giving just normal small business loans, they're, they're not in that business right now. So it, it kind of feels like if if on deck was only sold for 90 million, is cabbage really going to get a billion? 
like either on deck completely was undervalued and sold for nothing. And I think you said even like two years before on deck's value was 2 billion. I think yeah. you said last well, week. So all these valuations, like it's, it's just, you know, investors put in a slice of money and then that creates the the valuation for the company. But like, it, you know, it's, it's all kind of, it's imaginary. Right? It only matters the, yeah. the last one. Right. right exactly. Like, it only matters when you go public or you get acquired. So right, yeah. yeah. So it's just, uh, it'd be interesting to see where this goes. Cause, uh, and, and we kind of talked about this, like some of these loan, the balance sheets were looking weird or bad for these guys. And so you're starting to see either consolidation now, or you're going to start seeing them sell. Um, I wonder where they, where, where cabbage can land. Yeah. I mean, cabbage, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they made a lot of PPP loans, right? So now they have basically a ton of new customers that they could sell to. And I think that's the value is whoever acquires them now has this group of people who are depending on cabbage for this loan forgiveness application. And maybe they're going to be paying back the loan over time or a portion of the loan over time. So that's a, that's a big opportunity. And cabbage showed that it could pivot. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like if, 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 if half of all small businesses go under because of COVID, right? So of those 270, that's still 140,000, you know, 135,000 uh, small businesses that they now have a relationship with. And then can they move them to their bank offering or whatever it might be? And, and the ones that got these PPP loans are much more likely to stay afloat than the ones that didn't, right? So it's a good group of customers probably. Speaking of crazy valuations, Rippling raised $145 million in their Series B at a $1.35 billion valuation. David, I'm going to do it again to you. Do you mind explaining what Rippling does? So Rippling is a, and the short, easiest answer is a payroll app, but not really just payroll. So Rippling, the, the theory is ripples. So when you hire an employee, that's the thing, and, and you put them into your payroll system, that should trigger everything else. So, so if I'm going to hire, I, I'm a slightly bigger company, right? That's who this is going to be for. It's not a small business, but I'm a slightly bigger company, Blake, and I'm going to hire you. So mm-hmm. as soon as I put you into the payroll system, oh, guess what? It's automatically going to issue your new laptop. Oh, it's automatically going to set you up on Google Apps and the, the other 500 things I might be doing in my company. Right. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to onboard you to all the other processes that's necessary to onboard an employee. And that's the, the genesis of it. Now, what's interesting about Rippling is the founder is the former founder of Zenefits. Yes. Parker Conrad, is it? Yes. And so this is his second unicorn because Zenefits became, quickly became a unicorn. And then had its drama. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Rippling is, you know, following a similar trajectory. $145 million for a Series B is just enormous. And I found an article with some stats from a podcast interview in April. Nathan Lotka's podcast is very popular among startup founders. And when you go on that show, you have to reveal some information about your company. You can't just talk uh, in generalities. You have to actually... There people pitch, know, right? Yeah. They're always pitching their app. Yeah. So... Rippling in April said it had 2,000 customers paying an average of $700 per month. So I did the simple math, and that comes out to 1.4 million in monthly recurring revenue, which is 16.8 million in annual recurring revenue. So at a valuation of 1.35 billion, that is 80 times their annual earnings right now. So that is a pretty substantial multiple to raise money at. But clearly the investors believe in Parker Conrad and his CTO, who also was at Zenefits. And they said that they are quickly on their way to doubling that 16.8 million in ARR heading to like 35 million, which is impressive if they can actually do that in this downturn. 
that's a really good sign. My observation is he's running this differently than Zenefits. So Zenefits came on, they were the fastest growing SaaS company since uh, Salesforce, right? They, they, yeah. they were making this claim everywhere and they were very salespeople heavy. So their culture was sales, sales, sales. They had people lying to pass the insurance exams, right? And it just, it spun out of control, right? It was, it was, uh, I think, I mean, Zenefits is still around, but in a way they were, they were too heavily weighted salespeople and marketing and not actual engineers. And it feels like if I look at Rippling, what they've built, the amount of function, it's just, there's a lot of functionality and it's almost like they learned their lesson and now they're, they're investing way more, the ratio of engineers and product that's being created versus sales feels like it's completely different. So like there's more of a real meteor product here. And it's a really unique approach to payroll HR in that they're designing a payroll HR information system that I guess that's the technical term for it is HRIS, human resources information system, where this is everything about your employees, not just how much they make for payroll purposes, but also everything else you need to do uh, to onboard them and then execute those workflows through integrations with other applications. So like you said, when I hire Blake on his first day, automatically provision him a Google Apps account, automatically put him in Okta, automatically add him to bill.com or Zero or all of my other apps. I mean, this was a problem for me as a cloud accounting practice owner. When I got a new bookkeeper on staff, I had to add them to like 12 different apps and it took my entire morning. And then I'm assuming the opposite is true that like when you get rid of an employee, it unripples all that back in theory. Yeah, I would hope so. Cause that's also a huge problem is, you know, I ran into this actually when I was working at a, a big firm is we had bookkeepers who, you know, still had access to bill.com after they left six months later. And they could have theoretically logged in because it wasn't a single sign on kind of situation if they knew their password, like just total security holes. So yeah, this is, it's really cool. They're a very unique business and, and you can see other companies have started to copy them, right? Gusto has added in some of this functionality now where you can provision email accounts as soon as folks are hired. So uh, that to me indicates that they have, they are onto something here. Yeah. They're merging together the IT department with the HR department. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, Hey, apologies to any IT folks listening, but like, we want to get rid of you. Like no, no accounting firms do not want IT people. <laughs> And there goes a whole section of audience gone. So bye. Hey, let's continue on. I got a few more things here. Um, yeah, I got some teeny app news as well. Just a couple right, small well, ones. Well, here's a big one though, because we were talking about Intuit. Yeah. Uh, Intuit is now under investigation by the Department of Justice for their takeover of Credit Karma. That's according to Payments.com. So, listeners may recall, as we talked about on the podcast, I think it was a few months ago, Intuit agreed to pay $7.1 billion to purchase Credit Karma, the free credit report app that does a whole lot more. You give it your information, it gives you your credit report, and then it also like sells you a bunch of like credit cards and all this stuff. It's actually really cool. I've used it to get my credit report for free. So apparently concerns have been raised within the Department of Justice that this is anti-competitive because Credit Karma also started doing taxes for free and that was a existential threat to TurboTax because why would you pay to do your taxes when you could do them completely for free? That's really all the news there is, is that the investigation is open. It'll probably take a while. But, uh, it could get unwound. They may, they may stop it. I, and it probably depends on you know who's president. Yeah, and it could also depend on like how, I mean, in the grand scheme of the whole tax space, Intuit doesn't have a monopoly power. 
right? There's tons of, they're going to be able to probably argue that there's tons of competitive options out there. I'm, you know, I'm curious about that. Like, what is the market share of TurboTax? Because I know they are just absolutely gigantic. Okay, I found it. I love Google. TurboTax has 67% of the market, two-thirds of the market. I wonder if that's just for paid products or third-party products. I mean, not versus all tax returns filed. So, Credit Karma's market share is only 3%, but growing fast. So, to me, this kind of looks a lot like Facebook's acquisition of Instagram, many years ago, where Instagram was very small and Facebook bought it for what, a billion dollars? You know, the argument that Facebook has made, that Mark Zuckerberg has made is, oh, it wasn't anti-competitive because they were so small. You know, we didn't know that they would end up being so important to our business. But look, you'd be kind of stupid not to do this if you were into it. And, you know, you have this threat coming. Why wouldn't you extinguish it when you could? The market share thing or the percentage, you have to look at all tax returns, I think. And the same thing with like QuickBooks. Like, yes, QuickBooks desktop dominated, right? In the late 90s, 2000s, right? And, and I think QuickBooks desktop at one time was pushing 92% market share. But at best, they only had 25% of small businesses. Everybody else is still doing pens and papers. Right, right, so, right. So, I think it's like, how do you, like, like, do they have 60% of just like paid or free returns or is it... They're only doing 45, 50 million of all the tax returns that are filed. I think it's a, there, there's plenty of options and comp- competition out there. So I don't know. But I, but I get, they have to look into it. Like they should be looking into all these major acquisitions like this, you, you, ultimately for the consumer. I have something interesting when Jobber. So Jobber, um, they are, think like lawn board guys, uh, no plow drivers, right? Those types of services, really small field service type jobs, maybe a pool guy, right? Mm-hmm. So Jobber is software for that, but they've gotten a deal with Stripe and they're going to offer real-time access to funds. So they're going to, if you, so you, you know, your pool guy comes over and now he's, he's got to go to Home Depot and buy chlorine, right? To do your pool, River needs to do those pool supplies. He'll charge you through Jobber and they're using Stripe and you're, it's going to be in his bank account in seconds, even on non-business days. Mm. So all this real-time so, deposits thing is getting bigger and bigger because we were just talking about this last episode. Yeah, which is huge. Like if you think about like from the use case for like a contractor, oh, yeah. who's just doing these small jobs by jobs, like they can't float customers. The, the, like, you can't float a customer, especially if it's a one-time job and they may not pay you later on. Yeah. And you just bought the supplies for their job. I think it's a big announcement from the spirit of it, right? Of what this means for contractors. So as 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 I think you can infer just from our discussion here, the cloud is doing really, really well in the pandemic. The fact that Rippling was able to raise all this money in the middle of the pandemic, that TradeGoGo is getting acquired. Cloud is doing great. And we got some numbers in a big picture sense from the Wall Street Journal. Cloud spending worldwide is up to $34.6 billion. $34.6 billion on cloud technology worldwide among all types of businesses. That is 11% higher than last quarter and 30% higher than the previous year. So this is one of those areas that is doing really well. And it's obvious, of course, right? We're all working from home. We can't go to the office. We can't sit around and maintain servers. Like it just has to happen. Now, one company though that didn't do so great is Rackspace. Are you familiar with Rackspace? They're like a, they kind of have declined in recent years, but you know, former competitor to Amazon for web hosting. Uh, I think Zero used to be on Rackspace, and then they migrated over to Amazon Web Services. Ring a bell? Yeah, because I want to. You know, basically, I'm renting a machine from them, if you want to call it that. Right. And then, but I'm responsible, kind of, for putting the software on that machine, spinning it up, you know, maintaining it. 
I can run a virtual server, right? Or I can actually have a full server. Yeah. So they had an IPO. This is actually their second IPO. I guess they 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 had an IPO years ago. They went private. Now they're back going public. They had um, priced their shares at like twenty dollars or something, and they fell twenty percent right away. Or they had yeah they they started at uh, twenty one dollars on Tuesday, and they fell down to sixteen eighty five uh, on Wednesday. What's crazy is how much debt they have. Right? So they were taken private by Apollo Global Management in 2016 at a deal valued at $4.3 billion. And they currently now have $3.9 billion in debt. So this is like one of those classic private equity deals where the private equity firm borrows billions of dollars, buys a public company, takes them private, and then you know supposedly fixes them up and then sells them back onto the public market, but with all this debt. And Rackspace's uh, revenue is, what is it? It is um, expected to be between $655 million and $657 million in the second quarter. So they have a lot of debt for uh, their revenue. Even if, they're, even if they're making like, let's say it's $650, K, $650 million per quarter. So that's what, like $2.6 billion? That's th- Their debt is greater than their total annual revenue. It sounds a lot like the Hertz thing. If you, if you, I mean, we haven't talked about it on the podcast, but if you've yeah. been following the Hertz, like they've kind of run this game. Somebody buys them, they take on more debt, and then because and it goes back to what you were talking about modern monetary theory. The money is so cheap yep. that it's just easy for big companies like Hertz just to keep taking more of it, and they just keep taking so much debt. And and for private equity firms to do this kind of stuff, right? Because it's very easy for them to raise the billions of dollars to do these private equity deals. So. Um, you know, kind of like uh, Meta, because this is about a hosting company, but I think, you know, uh, relevant to the whole cloud computing discussion. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ADP Marketplace. How can you be a more trusted advisor for your clients as they face new challenges? By recommending solutions from ADP Marketplace, ADP's digital HR storefront. With ADP Marketplace, clients can try, buy, and implement highly rated HR apps that can share data with ADP. With secure data integrations, it's easy to streamline HR processes and adapt to new business needs. Help your clients discover new ways to recruit and onboard employees, boost performance, offer unique financial wellness benefits, and much more. And with integrations for popular business software like Expensify, PayActive, Slack, and ClockShark, clients can add value to the tools they already use by simply and securely connecting them to ADP. Have clients in field service or construction? ClockShark can help them track time to quickly and accurately run payroll, all integrated with ADP. Visit ADP Marketplace at apps.adp.com or right from your Accountant Connect dashboard. Not set up with Accountant Connect? Sign up today. It's free. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash ADP. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash ADP. ADP has your back with ADP Marketplace. One last story here before we wrap things up. And I have one too. So okay. Two last stories. Two, two last, last stories here. So uh, Square had amazing results. They posted $1.92 billion in revenue, which is a 64% increase in total revenue year over year in its Q2 earnings. Now, one piece that's really interesting about that, a ton of that revenue, 45% of their total revenue was from Bitcoin transactions. So the Square Cash app, David, you've talked about this on the show. Yeah. You can transact in Bitcoin on the Cash app. You can use your Cash app balance to purchase Bitcoin. You can transfer it to people. You can convert it back into cash. 
Every time you do that, Square earns around 1.75%. So the more Bitcoin that is going on, the easier they make it, the more they make, just like with credit card transactions. And it has really, really, really paid off. It was only 5% of their total revenue in Q1 of 2018. Now it's 45%. I think I heard that in their conference call with investors, they actually have talked about how they're going to start really pushing their cash card or their uh, Square Cash accounts towards small business owners now. So right now it's been really kind of consumer facing a little bit. Right, hey, right, right. You, And now they're going to really start pushing it at the small business users, which obviously they already have. And then, you know, following into its announcement last week, it really makes sense that, you know, they're, you're, you're not going to, you're, you're going to take advantage of that press cycle, right? If QuickBooks is creating a product, say, called QuickBooks Cash and Intuitive spend millions getting it out there to everybody's vernacular. And then, you know, Square should just ride that wave. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. We have finally gotten to the point where every service provider in our household, gardener, pool guy, uh, housekeeper, everybody is charging us with an app. Now it's not all the same app, but it's all an app. So I never have to write a check anymore. I'm just, I'm so happy. I hope that the whole world goes this direction. Yeah. I'm, I'm still writing two checks a month. Oh, first that's two great. Things. So um, obviously we talked about scale factor a couple weeks ago, this whole concept, these accounting firms with engineers. Yes. Right? So there's another uh, app called Proper. And it's property management for, you know, apartment complexes, you know, um, things like that. Property mm-hmm. managers, property owners can use this. So it's an AI-powered accounting and bookkeeping service. So is this a proper.ai? Am I looking at the right site here? This says, we manage the books, you manage the property. Yes. The headline is, proper raises $4.8 million to become the Uber of property accounting. So it's got all, all the keywords for a raise, right? The word yeah. Uber in there. You've got AI powered, right? And Oh, yeah. The headline on the website, our financial experts use machine learning technology to provide accurate, reliable, flexibly priced accounting and bookkeeping services. It's interesting because they're not trying to eliminate, they're trying from a cost perspective, you know, and they say that they're using artificial intelligence and machine learning technology to offer scalable accounting and bookkeeping services to more efficiently and cost effectively than the traditional in-house, right. which is probably true. Like if you have two or three huge apartment complexes and you're trying to do all the bookkeeping in-house, it does make sense. And really the more I think about, you know, this whole march to automate all of accounting, I think it's very hard unless you're kind of niche mm-hmm. because they're only handling apartment complexes. There's going to be a set of limited use cases. Right. And there's probably a set of limited tools. Like everybody uses the same thing to log their rent or I don't know, or to run their promotions and some ads. And Well, just as simple as the chart of accounts, you can actually have a standardized chart of accounts. that's the same for every single user and it will work and it will make sense. Whereas with a generalized bookkeeping service, you try to do that and inevitably the reports are kind of meaningless. Because they're not yeah. customized to the business. So they were founded in 2017. And the only other part that caught my eye in this article was Proper has 40 customers. Right, so how much money did they raise with 40 customers? Uh, 4.3 million? What was it? Wow. Scroll back to the top. 4.8 million. 4.8 4. 8 million. million. Now, obviously, these customers are probably bigger and high end because some of them range from either 250 units to 10,000 units across the US, right? And they're really their target demographic is uh, product managers or sorry, is property managers with 200 to 10,000 units. So that's a lot of money to raise. Basically, it's an accounting firm with 40 clients. Now, they're high-end clients, but... Well, so it kind of makes sense because they're bigger clients. So, you know, they're probably paying like tens of thousands of dollars a month for this sort of 
Well, you're on their website right now, right? Yeah, I'm trying to look. I'm looking around. If there's no pricing, yes, it's probably ten thousand dollars a month, right? So yeah, they don't have they don't have pricing on their website, which means that it's it's yeah, it's going to be in that you know uh, five figures realm, right? Most likely. So I can see this actually happening, and then you know, four point eight is not crazy to raise for that kind of, you know, product market fit. I think actually this is a good sign like that this is doable. Right? Yeah. So they could maybe this will be the success in accounting firms with engineers. Uh, there's a quote from the proper customer, Rusty Heyman. He um, has a great quote. And the reason I love this quote, because I feel like sometimes I've always felt like small businesses understand automation and understand logical things like, hey, if I type my a name and address here, why doesn't it just show up in all the other apps automatically? Like they get it at some level, their expectation of APIs, just things working and data moving places automatically. Mm -hmm. And so he has a great quote here. He says, property management is a low margin, high volume business. All these companies who are not using some sort of AI for routine tasks will be left behind. So there's this big disconnect between what thought leaders are putting out there about AI and natural language processing and voice assistants and chatbots and whatnot, and what business owners actually need. There's this huge gap that we still have to fill when it comes to actually just getting them the information they need, and then also integrating all their apps together. I think that's the biggest problem is this lack of integrations. And this is probably why Rippling is doing so well, is we all want everything just to happen, right? We don't want to key in data multiple places. And this is not like something that requires artificial intelligence to do. It just requires like workflow and integration. I, I I agree. I mean, we've hit uh, two of the biggest tools we use to get the podcast out the door. We use a uh, Zencaster and we use um, transistor.fm and both of them I've been hitting up for a year. When are you going to have integration to Zapier? It doesn't seem like much, but like it would be nice if I could just trigger the podcast to be set up. So we just walk in and record and then trigger links and things back over to the to transistor but you know there's not there but the expectation like i want them to all work together like because mm-hmm. a lot of times it's me copying and pasting over and over and over again so i lied david i have one more tech story another another app story <laughs> this okay. is actually a fun story it's not like a cloud accounting app story but it is about microsoft excel this was in the verge the headline is scientists rename human genes to stop microsoft excel from misreading them as dates there are many human genes in the human genome, and 27 of, the, 27 of them had names that looked to Excel like dates. And a good example is MAR1. Okay, I got you. And I'm following. So, there's a gene called MAR1, or it used to be called that. And if you type that into Excel, Excel automatically converts that into the date, March 1st. And so, this apparently has been causing problems for years where researchers would be typing in this information, Excel would automatically convert that column to a date type field, and there's no way to turn this off. It doesn't exist in Excel. And you'd be screaming, right? You'd be cussing and screaming. Right, because it screws up all of your data, even if you do it correctly. And then let's say you export your data set into CSV file and somebody re-imports it into Excel, Excel will automatically format all those cells as dates. So it's been causing lots of issues. So even if you format the whole column to just plain text and then not, not well, because a, a CSV it, file is just plain text and contains oh yeah, no formatting yeah, information. Yeah. Right. So, cause CSV is the ultimate, you know, open database, right. Cause it's just text. So out of 3,579 published papers, roughly one fifth had been affected by Excel errors and caused by this sort of problem. So 
rather than try to get Microsoft to fix it, I guess, I, I, I didn't dig into this to find out if they even tried. They simply decided to rename the genome. So 27 human genes have been renamed so that they don't conflict with Microsoft Excel. And to me, this just shows you the power of Excel in our world. That like the DNA that makes up you and me, David, has been renamed by Microsoft Excel, in essence. A lot of times you'll see this in software, like for decades, some software will have some dumb warning that comes up and people will just retrain their bodies and retrain themselves to work around this bad UI design. And so like, this is the ultimate, like people that are just completely working around an Excel problem by like completely renaming their data, which is <laughs> insane. Like it's the ultimate uh, workaround. Yeah. So now are any of these, did Microsoft pay to have the these genomes renamed like they could have, <laughs> this is a marketing opportunity right it could have been know, like right? the microsoft genome and they should have sold this to all the tech companies yeah exactly it should be an add-on right an add-on that you have to purchase for thousands of dollars that prevents this from happening well no not that i mean like really like th- if you're trying to fund your your project and you're going to rename one of the genomes like sell the naming rights all right so what do you want to talk about next you know what we could talk about quickly is uh, conferences we yeah visit that quickly so scaling new heights has been moved so, Scaling New Heights originally was in June, then it was moved to September 20th, 23rd. Now, it's been moved to November 8th through the 11th, and that's going to take place in Orlando, Florida. You want to make a bet? I bet you $100 it gets canceled. Again? It does not happen in person. It, things are not, like, now that my kids are starting school tomorrow, like, there is no sign that they're actually going to go back in person. Like, I just... I'm starting, it's not that I'm becoming hopeless. It's just, it feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel yet in this at all. And you're right. How can you have an in-person event if like there's not any light at the end of the tunnel on this? Until there's a vaccine, I don't think these events resume and that's going to take until early 2021. And, and then it's going to take months and months and months for even tens of millions of doses to get out to people. So I mean, I'm concerned about next year's conference season. I don't know if the, maybe in the fall we'll get it, but it all depends on how opening up the schools goes. Like, does that create a huge surge in infections where we're really only, I think what, like 10 to 20% of the U S population has been infected at this point. So we've got to get to 60% before we have herd immunity. And um, that's the worst case scenario, right? 60%. And so like that could take years. So the, but the good news is there are like hundreds of vaccines in development. And so with that many shots on goal, as I think Fauci uses that analogy, it's very likely that one or actually dozens could work. So I'm optimistic for next year, it starting to become less of a problem. And then by 2022, we're back to normal. I mean, that would be, I don't know, is that too long? I hope that's not depressing. It is a little bit. I really miss everybody. So so (laughs) on the other hand, though, so Zero, who canceled all their Zero Cons that they had planned for 2020 across the world, they've started something new. It's going to happen this September 14th through the 17th. It's called uh, Zero On Air. And from right now, it looks like it's just a couple Zero leaders that are going to do some sort of speech or keynote webinar type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel like it's very conference-like, so it'll be interesting to see how that how that rolls through. Um, speaking of conferences, weren't you going to do some sort of virtual conference? How'd that go? Yeah, well, that's starting today. It's Sunday, August 9th as we record, and the Boomer Virtual Summit, Boomer Consulting Virtual Summit is starting this evening with a happy hour 
on their virtual platform. So I'm going to have a drink at my desk and I'm going to be on the 3D virtual platform, which looks a lot like Second Life. And uh, we'll see what happens. Be hanging out at the booth. So, uh, you know, hopefully this episode will get out in time for any folks to hear it who are going to be at the conference. So if you are, come stop by the draft booth and let's chat. It'll be fun. Can you uh, get me like a, a guest ticket or a guest pass? I'd like to just click in and like experience the virtual you know world what? there. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Okay. It'd be cool. And I can maybe, maybe what if we, could we have a booth and record the cloud accounting podcast like we used to do at the conference? At the conferences? <laughs> like, can I walk around with a cloud accounting podcast t-shirt? Like, does, is this possible? You cannot customize your avatar to that extent, unfortunately. Oh, at least I'm not aware of how to oh, do it. Oh, side Otherwise, note, speaking of, yeah. speaking of the cloud accounting podcast t-shirt, my daughter got her yearbook finally, you know, because mm-hmm. of COVID, it took months to get these things distributed out. And one of the photos in there, she's wearing a cloud accounting podcast t-shirt in her yearbook. It's awesome. It's oh, amazing. You got to take a picture of that and post that on the Instagram All right, account. I will, I will. All right. So let's talk about hourly pricing, hourly billing, I should say. So this, this story has been sitting with me for weeks. This was a byline by Ed Mendlowitz, who is someone that I actually really admire. He's like a traditional old school. I hope you wouldn't mind if I said that, but I think he would actually agree with me. Old school accounting firm partner. And he writes prolifically in accounting today and CPA trend lines about everything he knows and has learned over his career. He runs that, that meetup in New York city that uh, it's like a mixer. But it doesn't look like a mixer. It looks like this old secret society. You, know, you better know the right handshake <laughs> to get in there type of a thing. Yeah. See, that sounds kind of awesome, actually. Um, so, you know, I would love to eventually like get to meet him. Um, but, I, you know, I've been following him for a long time. And he wrote an article on CPA Trendlines called When Time Based Pricing Works. So, as you can imagine, this is controversial among folks who believe in value billing and, um, you know, or subscription now. Yeah. yeah. But there's, wow. a, there's a huge group of accountants and even bookkeepers who really, really believe in time-based pricing. And the vast majority of large firms still do time-based billing. So let's talk about this. This is a a story that Ed tells, an example of his early career when he felt that there was no way that he could have done time-based billing and made it work. And so this is an example of when time-based pricing works and when you couldn't do a fixed fee, I suppose. It goes way back to the 1980s. And Ed got a large client. The client actually was on a fixed annual fee to start to cover routine work. But then after three months, he was asked to suggest some methods of compensating highly paid managers and present them at a meeting in two weeks. So he was asked to do this special project. When he showed up for that meeting to present his initial recommendations, there were four other people who had been given the same assignment. So he he didn't know it, but he was in competition. He ended up winning and he was asked to go to the meeting of highly paid managers uh, for this company. He ended up spending many days at this conference, this company meeting, made his recommendations. It was a huge success. He apparently got a standing ovation after his presentation at this California resort with the management group with about 50 people. And he said, quote, considering everything I did, the time requirements, my needing to drop everything to attend this project, the trip, the drawing on every morsel of experience I had, I do not know how I could have set fixed fees in advance for each facet of the project. In retrospect, if I had quoted a fee for the initial proposal, knowing the client, he probably would have told me to skip it because he already had other people working on it. Once I started, there were defined projects at each step of the way but they were all part of the overall goal of presenting it to the management group in California. 
And he finishes by saying, quote, to this day, I don't know how I would have been able to set fees in advance for each of the many things I did. At the end of the day, the client felt the value was there and I was fairly compensated. And this ended up being one of his biggest clients over many, many years. Well, so I wanted to get your impression of this, David. Like, is this an example of when time-based pricing worked? What I don't like about this example is it's on the premise that he got the job because if one of the other people that were competing for this work possibly provi- uh, provided a quote to the customer that was value-based, they might have got the job. Like he, he, he's, he's saying how right he was using hourly because everybody who's competing with was using hourly, right? Like, like if somebody would have out, out of the gate, even if his idea was slightly better, maybe it wasn't better. Maybe they were all kind of equal. I don't know, right? We don't have insight to this, right? But if he, maybe he underquoted, maybe his hourly rate was cheaper and that's how he really got picked. It's not, it has, like, I, I think it's an argument, like, he's trying to say how this job was saved by the hourly rate. And maybe, I, I just don't know if that's true. Well, apparently they didn't even talk. He didn't even talk with the client about what it would cost at the beginning. But he presented his bill after the fact and the client accepted it. But, Which but, tells me they got a lot of value out of it and they didn't, they didn't put up a fuss. <laughs> like, he undercharged it. He left value on the table. Well, yeah, then that's my feeling too. And just because you can't think of a way to do a value-based bill for this doesn't mean that there isn't a way. <laughs> and yeah, you probably left money on the table if the client didn't complain about the bill. That's for one thing. So I was trying to think, how could I, if I were in Ed's shoes, have done this? Look at the project. The project was to come up with a plan for how to compensate highly paid employees, a compensation plan for this company. And there were like 50 people there. So what, probably several dozen, you know, highly compensated employees. And what is the goal of one of those plans? It's to incentivize them to generate revenue for the company, to generate profits for the company. And to keep the employees there as well, right? And to keep the employees happy, right? So like maybe one way, if you don't know how to price something is to have a conversation with the client and say, hey, what is this worth to you? What would be the impact of a plan that works spectacularly well to motivate your employees? Like, and, and actually talk through that with them. Like, what are you looking to do? What are your goals out of this project? I don't know if that happened, but it doesn't sound like it did, right? So, once you know the goals of the client, then you can start to attach value to the outcomes. So, if the client's goal is to increase revenue by, I don't know, $10 million a year, then I, as the consultant, could say, well, let's say that I design a compensation plan that helps you do that. Uh, What is that worth to you? Would you pay me $100,000 to increase your revenue by $10 million? And the way that I would structure that is to say... I'm not just going to create the plan. I am then going to, throughout the year, make sure that the plan is working and help you adjust the plan if it isn't. So now it's a long-term consulting arrangement around making sure that this compensation plan is acceptable to the employees and is successful in helping grow profits or revenue. And you make that a proportion of the outcome. And I think it's an easy sell because it it gives you stake in the game, right? Because now you actually care your money is going to depend on how successful this program is or not. If you're if you're just getting paid hourly, it doesn't matter if it's successful. You're still going to send them a bill and they're right. still going to pay you. So, you know, let's say that Ed spent like a week on this because it sounds like he went there for a few days, you know, to, probably took days to put this together. So, I don't know what his billing rate was at the time, but let's, let's say it was really high. Uh, I mean, in today's dollars, right? So, what would be a high rate for an accounting firm partner? Like 500 
maybe even a thousand dollars per hour. So let's say let's say it was a uh, five hundred. So that would be five hundred times forty is twenty thousand dollars. So if you bill hourly for a week of your time, that's the most you can make. But we just said like it could have been a hundred thousand dollars. It could have been much more than that, right? Depending on the success of the company. So that's the money that's being left on the table there. So that's just one idea. I'm curious what our listeners think, how they might have structured it. While I was thinking about this story, I also saw a story about McKinsey in ProPublica. And you know, McKinsey is the giant consulting firm that uh, famously does not bill by the hour. They instead bill by the week, apparently. That's what I learned in this ProPublica article. Yeah, basically, they're like the big four, that they, but they don't do audit. And that's why they're not an accounting <laughs> firm, right? But, but, but from the consulting side, they're the same as all the big four. So, you want to know how much it costs to hire a single junior consultant at McKinsey? These are either recent college or business school graduates. And they don't charge for them by the hour. They charge them by the week. A single junior consultant will cost you $67,500 per week or $3.5 million annually. See, hourly billing does work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're not billing hourly, right? They're billing by the week. And I assume that they're also able to charge that much because they're promising outcomes. So if you want two of them, by the way, it's $160,000 per week. So if you don't think you're leaving money on the table, billing strict hourly and not having this value conversation with clients, like McKinsey uh, would tell you otherwise. Well, they won't tell you otherwise because they don't want you to know, right? Because (laughs) they want to capture all this value. The premise of that article though, is they're very good at getting the government to give them these contracts and then encourage the government to not actually do work themselves. And basically, basically they have projects that tell the government, oh, your best option on this is to go find somebody else to work on. And by the way, we do that. Yeah. yeah. In other words, like McKinsey has profited greatly off of shrinking government because government then outsources a bunch of stuff to them and they charge exorbitant fees. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe not the best like ethical example of value-based billing, but you know, hey, value-based billing is not right or wrong. It just has an outcome. And if you want to make a lot of money, you should probably be doing it. So, uh, so that's my hourly billing story. Hey, I want to hear from listeners. Tell us, tell us what you think about this. I love having this conversation. Um, if you disagree, if you think hourly billing would have been better in the situation, let me know. If you have a different way of doing it, let me know. All right, moving on, David. I don't want to monopolize things, but I do want to talk about work from home before we go. Oh, that's a perfect transition. That's a perfect transition. I will. Okay. My story, in a way, has to do with work from home. Let's talk about your story. Okay. So this is actually a podcast I listen to. It's uh, it's the Rootworks podcast um, with Darren Root and then his co-host John Mitchell, who I think is somebody he wor- works at his firm. And Rootworks got acquired mm-hmm. by Right Networks recently, but they do a weekly podcast. I'm um, not even a weekly. It's like whenever they feel like it, maybe podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of oh, that sounds really it's nice. It's kind of them decompressing. <laughs> a little bit and right talking about leadership and transitions in their firm and these types of things but this lot this episode that I'll, we'll put in the show links to they really had some major like views of the world changing because they're they're they basically are firm owners right they're now entering their their mid to late 50s prioritizing of work and just how eye-opening it is for them working from home and they're going and so they're going through this journey just like everybody else is and what they've discovered is many times and, and I get this too right you'd stay in the office and you'd You'd be working from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., right? You go home and then you really have to cram and get the stuff you wanted to get done from 7 to 10. Mm-hmm. And so, they're just in their day where maybe in the middle of the afternoon, they were going to get work done anyways because it's their creative juices aren't going to work and they go for a bike ride or they 
go fishing or whatever it is, right? And then they just do their seven to 10 and they're just as, as just as effective as they've ever been. And just their, their, so it's really their observations is kind of, I don't know if firm leader is the right word. He has a kind of an accounting firm, but he's really has like a, a suite of accounting firms they coach. Like they're part of a rich club, right? But it's a similar kind of like structure. It's, it's, it's a consulting firm. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's it's, it's just a, it's very uh, eye opening his their observations and um just to hear him be open and honest about this change of his opinions on working from home and how it's affected him personally and emotionally and I just thought it was a really good listen and so we'll put that in there. Yeah. So on that topic, the National Bureau of Economic Research came out with a study quantifying how long is the work day now that we're working from home and how many meetings are we having and how long are those meetings. So can I guess some numbers now here? we can move along the way. Was can was I that? Guess you want to guess if some numbers along the way? Yeah, yeah. So um, by the way, this is from this is pretty accurate, I think, because it's some like application provider unnamed that has access to calendars. So we're actually looking at like the real data of tens of thousands of workers on their calendars. Like what is changing now from in person to remote? So the average workday has lengthened. You want to guess by how much? Previously, your workday was. Traditionally saying nine to five, you have eight hours, right? That was previously. Yeah, or eight to five, whatever I think you're pushing is, right? right now a 10 and a half to 11 hour workday. Not as bad as you would think. The average workday has lengthened by 48.5 minutes on average. Okay. That's not that bad, right? Considering that a lot of people's commutes were that long or longer in the past, especially in large metro areas. I think what's happening there is that you know people are starting work when they normally used to get on the train or they get in their car, something like that. Um, the number of meetings has increased. Want to hazard a guess? I so there's eight percentage. So, so we're eight, eight hours, forty five minutes a day. You're probably in a meeting for six of those hours. So at least, so percentage wise, I guess meetings went up forty five percent, fifty percent. Only thirteen percent. The number of meetings has increased thirteen percent. And here's the crazy part: the time per meeting has fallen by eleven point five percent. So all in all, that's kind of like a wash, right? If you have more meetings, but the time per meeting has fallen. It probably doesn't make that much of a difference. So really, all this stuff about how we're all miserable working from home, I don't think is true. I think we're we're working more, but it's because we don't have these commutes. So it's better use of our time. We're probably also saving time like getting ready in the morning. Like you said, David, <laughs> now you haven't taken a shower in a week, but you do have a pool. So you are at least rinsing. Chlorine right? clean is what we like to call it, right? <laughs> Chlorine clean. I did that yesterday. You know, we're, we're saving time in the end and I find it much easier to focus working from home. So that's that's the stat there. I'd be curious to know what our listeners think here. Uh, I, actually, I think probably most of our listeners do already work from home, given that they're cloud accounting folks. And why not, right, if you're in the cloud? Uh, another story here about working from home that could be more negative, though, has to do with state tax nexus. This was on accounting today. And the headline is, the work from home tax crisis we have to see coming. So this is going to hit us real hard next year. It's that, or maybe even later this year, it's that when people go from an office to working from home, if they are working from a different state, that creates nexus now for that company. So in places like New York, where you've got a bunch of small states all right around there, if people are now working from home, that creates potential nexus in New Jersey and Connecticut and all these places that you may never have had if you were a New York employer. Oh, and by the way, New York is not very friendly to employees, so they still owe taxes in New York, even if they're working from Connecticut. Well, it depends on a state-by-state basis and what rules that they have um, with uh, reciprocity and all that stuff, actually. So 
that could be wrong. But if you're a California employer and you know your employee like me moves from California to Arizona, now you potentially have Arizona Nexus. And, and what if they don't really move? Because I know there's just a lot. I mean, in a way, like New York's a little younger, right? Younger professionals, San Francisco's younger professionals, right? And a lot of people have either moved back home temporarily during the pandemic. Now, if, if you're just temporarily living back at your parents' house for a while, but you're still being paid by your California company, yeah. does that mess around with the Nexus? Like, So, some of the states have enacted uh, exemptions for temporary, but it's different for every state. So, this to me is a potential huge productizing a service opportunity for accounting and consulting firms. A lot of your clients are going to have these questions. It's going to hit them at tax time. So, why not get ahead of it and productize this and say, look, we'll do a tax nexus study around your workforce. Call it something like a workforce nexus study. And we will charge you a flat fee to do this. And maybe you tier it based on the number of employees. And you send this out to your clients and get ahead of it. Say, we'll put together this report that says, you know, we'll find out where all your employees are working, uh, where you have potential nexus, and we'll do this report so you're ready at tax time. Here are the potential consequences. Here's how you can ameliorate the potential downsides, something like oh, that. Oh, and you're going to have to, so my advice to you, so this is practice, right? So you yeah. are going to have to count how many days you were in California versus Arizona. But now if you go to San Diego for a weekend with the wife to enjoy the weather, you have to count those three days as well as being in California. They you have to keep track of all of this. I actually have to be really careful not to go back to California because I moved here in June. And if I spend more than half the year in Arizona, then I don't think I, I actually have to check this. I do not know if I will owe California state taxes, but I believe if I spend more than half the year in Arizona, I'm an Arizona resident. I mean, for Cal- as far as California is I have concerned. a rental property there and yeah, we have to count like any day for any reason I've been in California and they, they, so it's not just any days you worked in California. They want to know any time you've been in California and they count those days. Well, I guess I have an excuse for not going to see my in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, with that, David, I think we're up at the end of the hour. So before we go, let's read our second review. I'll let you take that one. Great info for accountants. The cloud accounting pod is my go-to source for all things cloud accounting. As a cloud accountant and firm owner, I feel like Blake and David really are in my corner making sure I have the info I need to do my job better. They tackle the tough issues of our industry and give us the best and most up-to-date information. Thanks, guys. Baby Bruce via Apple Podcast. All right. Thank you, Baby Bruce. David, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they do so? Easterway is on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm at David Leary. But on LinkedIn, make sure you say you listen to the show so I know you're not a robot. Same here. Connect with me on LinkedIn. On Twitter, I'm at Blake T. Oliver. And David, great to talk to you. Stay safe. Stay sane. See you here next week. Time for the classifieds. Still sending spreadsheets of unclassified expenses to clients? With ClientHub, automate this process and get client answers instantly. ClientHub is a client communication platform that helps you consolidate client communication, securely share files, and instantly get answers and much, much more. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app and enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. ClientHub, frictionless client communication.